If you are a person of extremes, emotions, moods, behaviors, addictions, obsessions, all or nothing thinking, this podcast is for you. We're going to get deep into healing from behavior patterns that disconnect us from our true selves. Welcome to the Middle Cath, where we are healing from extremes and finding self-worth, self-love, self-compassion, and forgiveness. We are finding the middle path to a balanced life. I am your host, Kathy. This episode on healing the extreme behavior of avoiding confrontation underwent a full rewrite and re-recording. In fact, the scapegoat episode emerged while writing this episode on confrontation and may be worth hearing before this one if you haven't already. The first version of this episode was so angry that the middle path was not in sight. While anger is certainly justified, it can turn off perspective, narrowing focus and seeing things more in black and white rather than the complex full color mosaic of multiple truths. The point of the mosaic is clarity and seeing as much of the whole truth as possible. Rather than succumbing to my inner volcano of rage, I want to demonstrate how I grapple with overwhelming anger by actively increasing self-worth, self-love, and inner strength to protect myself so that maybe you can better protect yourself too. I want to approach conflict with centeredness like a Jedi, powerfully protecting my boundaries without the extremes of either total submission or getting dragged into the muck of a fight with a bully. It's deflecting incoming attacks from the mindset of Tai Chi, not engaging in MMA combat with an aggressor. When I met my current therapist, it was at one of the deepest lows of my life. My number one challenge in life, I told her, was pathological non-confrontation. It was one of my most extreme self-protective behaviors. For me to actually confront someone, I had to be backed into a corner. There had to be no other way because if there had been any way to avoid the confrontation, I would have. At almost any cost to me, my mental health, and my well-being. I had no experience being protected from incoming insults or threats, cruel teasing, bullying, all of it. I could not defend myself to save my life, which resulted in both an autoimmune thyroid diagnosis and a psychiatric diagnosis. I believe healing from the effects of abuse by the self-absorbed is why I'm no longer on prescription medication after 15 years on thyroid meds and four years on a variety of psychiatric meds. Being off meds and symptom-free means I no longer identify with either diagnosis. I may be vulnerable to both and other illnesses because I'm human, but I don't have a problem with my thyroid or brain anymore. The root of my problems was not a chemical imbalance. At the root is narcissistic abuse trauma from bullying by family, former friends, and coworkers. 
I am healing from trauma and finally healing my extreme and self-destructive non-confrontation. No other adult can dominate me without my consent, no matter their rank. I have self-worth now. I do not want, let alone need, their approval. Approval and love from a narcissist are actually neither. All they have to offer is unwelcome domination, bullying, negs, negativity, and general misery. I love me way too much to supply them anymore. I am a doormat no more. As I mentioned in the scapegoat episode, per WebMD, the fight response is your body's way of facing any perceived threat aggressively. Flight means your body urges you to run from danger. Freeze is your body's inability to move or act against a threat. Fawn is your body's stress response to try to please someone to avoid conflict. The fawn response often covers up distress and damage you're feeling inside due to trauma. Fawning is a common reaction to childhood abuse. The fawn response is your body's emotional reaction that involves becoming highly agreeable to the person abusing you. My freeze fawn response to incoming threats, trying desperately to keep the bully happy, is a people-pleasing response rooted in narcissistic abuse trauma. It did keep me safe in some ways for many years. On the one hand, I suffered from not being able to defend myself. On the other, I have never run my mouth on the job in anger and regretted it. Suppression kept my volcano of rage from erupting, and I am certain I avoided confrontations with self-absorbed people that would have been absolutely fruitless. But I took it to such an extreme that I was also dangerously exposed and highly vulnerable, like a prey animal. Fawning kept me relatively safe from abusers before I learned to fight. But fighting back with boundaries keeps me more than physically safe. It keeps me sane, too, quite literally. So how did I possibly function without confronting so many of the countless bullies in this world despite their relentless boundary testing? By fawning and absolutely obsessing about them and what their next move might be. Of course, there's no getting ahead of bullying. The bullying is the point. It is impossible to avoid. In my episode on obsessions, I described two interactions with bully bosses that were particularly petty, cruel, and frankly, a little sadistic. They dumped their narcissistic rage on me because they were feeling low or unsuccessful and needed to dominate someone to boost their egos. With the first boss, when I was 25, I just took it and submitted completely. I gave in. With the second boss, when I was 35, it took me about 15 hours after the incoming attack to process it. But I did, in fact, fight back the next morning. I mentioned in the Obsessions episode that I wished it was the last time I was bullied by him. The second most memorable episode of his bullying was his utterly enraged reaction to learning of a decision I had made without his approval. In his mind, I had clearly made the wrong call, and we were all going to die as a result. 
It was not healthcare, by the way. It was marketing, and no lives were actually at stake. It was about more than him just being a jerk. It was about him fully laying into another full-grown adult, me, who allowed his abuse more and more. Turns out his rage was not because of anything other than his losing a power struggle with another executive. I learned my decision had meant forfeiting on his behalf a pissing contest that I was completely unaware of politically. The details are unimportant. It was my lack of awareness to the fact that I was surrounded by narcissists that made me such an easy target. My self-absorbed bully mother was in no position to advise me on how to defend myself from bullies at school. She needed me weak and dysregulated and saw me as an object, a possession, an extension of her. It was impossible for her to see me as a separate autonomous person with my own opinions and entirely different life experiences. I existed to serve her as her golden child and to earn gold stars in exchange for praise, which she could claim as her own. She was fully incapable of teaching me to be truly independent, not just a self-sufficient, responsible, parentified child who taught herself life skills like cooking and cleaning, but an empowered woman with boundaries. My mom used to proclaim, kids need boundaries, which meant kids need rules. (laughs) Toddlers love rules. Toddlers also rely on simplistic, black and white, all or nothing, good or bad, heaven and hell thinking. Shifting from all or nothing thinking to mosaic thinking is a process of maturation from the thinking of an adult toddler to an adult who is capable of wrapping their head around complexity. Life is nothing if not complex, and filtering one's thinking into all or nothing extremes is a rejection of the truth. Likewise, just getting lost in a gray confusion instead of seeing the many conflicting truths just promotes hiding in denial. It's true, I'm not qualified to diagnose anyone as a narcissist. That also doesn't mean they're not a narcissist either. All I need to know is who I supplied so I can be sure to never submit to their domination without my consent again, narcissist or not. That's the thing about bullying. Bullies don't bully every minute, nor do they bully everyone. They test a lot of people. Some people bite back, so they pursue easier targets who don't. Targets, like I used to be. Because bullies are not 100% terrible, they are a mosaic too, with some good qualities. Maybe they're gifted and talented, high IQ but low EQ. The possibilities are many. People who haven't been bullied by them might not know that side of them and might find it hard to believe you. No one in my mom's religious community would believe a word of what it was really like to be her child, unless they had already awakened to experiencing narcissistic abuse themselves. Does their not believing my truth make it less true? No, it just makes their denial more profound. And that's their journey. Not everyone is capable of such an awakening in this lifetime. They can have all the wrong opinions they want based on their limited experiences. 
the self-absorbed have an uncanny tendency to defend other self-absorbed people after all. I no longer need their agreement. I don't need their understanding either. It protects their denial for them to not understand, not get it, not believe it, and claim to not remember what happened. I don't care. I'm right, and I trust myself. I think of the Upton Sinclair quote, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Okay, let's take a second to break the fourth wall. Did you hear how I sounded just now? Sounds like I've done the healing work and I'm now invincible, right? Well, part of me is authentically that, and part of me just aspires to it. Part of me is a highly sensitive person who only recently grew out of being a doormat. Remember, I had to rewrite and re-record this entire episode because the first version was so angry there was little actual healing in it. If my conviction sounds out of reach to you, I understand. It took a year from the start of my awakening to actually learning to set boundaries with my most distressing bullies. For months, I was aware of my vulnerability to them with no ability to act and defend myself at all. I'm still learning how to act, and I do still find myself very dysregulated, especially by the people who are hardest to cut off, the family and coworkers I struggle to avoid. I find myself at points all along the spectrum, from invincibility to vulnerability, certainty and uncertainty. One of the most important healing developments was learning to trust myself. I trust myself was truly aspirational in 2019. And now in 2023, I finally believe it. Okay, back to the episode. For the record, I did confront my mother two times. The first was when I was 18, when she was in the process of discarding me before I moved out. I remember thinking she made leaving home very appealing, with her constant silent treatment, anger, and blatant disgust for me. My enabler dad said she was depressed. When I went to him with genuine concern that she hated me, based on her hateful behavior, he reassured me, she loves you, dear. I now know her definition of love was different than mine, but I believe she absolutely did love my positive supply as her golden child. I confronted her, saying, I think you're being hard on me because I'm the oldest child like you were. She made a dismissive sound, threw up her hands as if to sweep away what I just said, and walked away. I think I hit the nail on the head. The second time, I was in my late 20s, early 30s. My husband and I met in our early 20s and were together for several years before marrying. She had been pressuring me about grandchildren well before the wedding. My sibling provided her with a grandchild, but she did not let up on pressuring me. She wanted grandchildren and felt entitled to get them from me, it seemed. Frankly, it seemed to me she wanted ornaments, objects, not babies who are actually just brand new real people, not toys. After a long time of being extremely annoyed by her self-centered pressuring of me, I finally pulled her outside to say, one-on-one, 
I appreciate that you're excited for the next chapter in my life, and I am too. My friends have had miscarriages, and I don't know what's going to happen for me, so I don't want to hear another word about grandchildren. She dismissed it, assuring me a miscarriage would never happen. She was wrong. I was so angry with her after my miscarriage years later in 2016, which took place a month after her Alzheimer's diagnosis. She was so far gone, there was no confronting her then about how wrong she had been, and it would have been pointless anyway. I was absolutely crushed by the miscarriage and her dismissiveness and then total unavailability to me due to both of her mental illnesses added insult to injury. The miscarriage occurred when my first child was between two and three years old. After my eldest was born, my mom had visited us and held him in her arms. She would not stop repeating, passive-aggressively, Your mom wouldn't let us talk about you! The confrontation stayed with her, and I can imagine my boundary was her trigger. She didn't like my boundary, and she made a point of it several times. Her irritating repetition at that time was a feature of Alzheimer's. But her emotionally immature fixation on resenting my boundary was a feature of covert narcissism. Non-confrontation is a symptom of having been raised among the self-absorbed because they make confrontation a total impossibility. Maybe you've heard of the narcissist prayer. According to thelifedoctor.org, the narcissist prayer by Dana Craig illustrates the inner workings of the narcissistic mind. Denial, gaslighting, minimizing poor behavior, blame shifting and shame dumping all feature in this one simple verse, all hallmarks of covert emotional abuse. It goes like this. That didn't happen. And if it did, it wasn't that bad. And if it was, that's not a big deal. And if it is, that's not my fault. And if it was, I didn't mean it. And if I did, you deserved it. Another defensive strategy of the self-absorbed is called DARVO, an acronym based on the work of psychologist Jennifer Freyd. Per Wikipedia, the steps of DARVO are D. The abuser denies the abuse ever took place. A. When confronted with evidence, the abuser then attacks the person that was abused and or the person's family and or friends for attempting to hold the abuser accountable for their actions. And finally, RVO. The abuser claims they are actually the victim in the situation, thus reversing the positions of victim and offender. It involves not just playing the victim, but also victim blaming. The impenetrable defense of the narcissist's version of reality, regardless of the fact that their version is not at all actually true, makes confrontation completely pointless. If a person would rather be a bully with no empathy treating you like an object instead of stopping and respectfully considering your perspective as a human being, why bother ever challenging them? That's the point. To make challenging them so unpleasant that it won't ever happen. 
What I have learned about being raised by, friends with, managed by, or working alongside narcissists is there is no use confronting them with accusations, judgment, and certainly not any shaming. Nor is there any use revealing any of my real feelings, like real anger. My feelings are none of their business. They are utterly incapable of taking my perspective anyway because they lack empathy. I don't give them any details of the actual truth of my emotional experience of them. I do not give them ammunition. I do not offer any vulnerability, exposing my neck to them to invite them to suck the lifeblood out of me. I'm not giving them negative supply about how upset I am with them. With time, my anger just becomes exasperation anyway. I'm bored of them now. People who used to terrify me are just adult toddlers, turns out, my mother included. I'm not giving them the satisfaction of my dysregulation. They don't have power over me now that I see them for what they are. I observe them instead of getting sucked into their mind games and manipulation. I have unmasked the Wizard of Oz, and he's just a tiny, pathetic mortal with an inflated ego due to his own childhood trauma, most likely. It's sad, really, but not sad enough for me to submit in order to temporarily boost his ego anymore. I am supply no more, and he'll find it much easier to pick a different target now. Most importantly, I am no longer just ignoring their egregiously bad behavior. Just ignore them is antiquated advice I got growing up in the 1980s and 90s. The key is definitely not to ignore them, but simply to draw a boundary. Rather than accusing them of bullying, which they would never admit, I just state my needs. I confronted someone at work, Timothy, after bad treatment over the course of a year. I found excuses to not confront him as always. But finally, it became clear to me that not only would nothing change, it would only get worse if I didn't defend myself. When I imagined reporting him before confronting him, I realized my actual experience would not change at all in the short term. Until an authority figure got around to trying to get him in line, and what, without naming me specifically as a person to stop bullying? I am my own top priority now. And I could take action immediately if I chose to. So I did. I waited to be approached, which didn't take long. And finally, after all this time, I said exactly this. I'd like you to leave me alone. I'm not kidding. He was shocked and split immediately. If I find I have to draw that boundary again, all I have to say is, I asked you to leave me alone. Reporting before directly confronting would have made me a fearful victim. Reporting infractions after the confrontation is entirely different. I absolutely had to fight my own battle first, and the confidence, happiness, and actual joy I feel about loving myself enough to protect and defend me is one of the greatest feelings I have ever felt. It actually has little to do with the perp, ultimately. By actually confronting him, I am slaying a much bigger, older dragon, my mother. Mom transference is what made me afraid to say no to narcissists, believing the old no-conflict fawn routine was safer because my mom was totally impossible to confront in any way. Fawning with abusers, however, was unfortunately misleading to them. 
not setting boundaries gave them full permission to continue being themselves. They wanted to dysregulate me into self-destructing, getting angry, lashing out, looking crazy while they played the victim. Nope. I'm in the observer now, watching them try to dysregulate me. Not today. I am done playing the part of the prey. I've learned it's critical to draw boundaries as soon as possible. Avoiding it only intensifies the problem to the detriment of both the target, me, and the perpetrator, them. Avoiding confrontation, not setting boundaries, and supplying covert narcissists helped neither me nor them. I got sicker and my self-worth plummeted when I took their narcissistic abuse. They got sicker too, and their personality-disordered behaviors worsened. They got their ego pumped by a submissive, fawning codependent who enabled their esteem addiction and self-absorption, further exacerbating the problem and empowering them in their toxicity. How were they ever going to reject any of my supply, attention, when they're esteem addicts? They test everyone, and I was someone who never told them no. Allowing them to dominate me without my consent was bad for both of us. It has to be on me to draw the boundary because they have none. Every bully in my life was a gatekeeper. They wanted to stop me from progressing, delaying me at their gate, attracting my attention, focus, fear, and obsessiveness in my desperate attempt to protect myself. All I had to do to pass through the gate was tell them no and move on. I have informed my children that yes, adults get bullied too. Some adults never stop being toddlers who try to dominate others. I was a magnet for them because I used to be a doormat. I have no doubt that suddenly setting boundaries feels like changing the rules of the game that went on for far too long. I'm sure it feels very unfair and mean to stop supplying and fawning out of nowhere. Fighting back instead of avoiding and hiding. It was hardly a fight, and it wasn't at all a counterattack. It was simply a boundary. There's nothing to argue about, no accusation for the bully to defend against. I'm simply done. I am supply no more. Adult toddlers can think whatever they like. Their fantasies of reality are none of my business. All every adult toddler craves is boundaries, safety, and love but they're not getting it from me, the object beneath them. There is no changing or saving them from their own misery. Not even allowing them to hurt me helps them feel better. Then we're both miserable. Misery may love company, but it ain't me, babe, any longer. There is only enabling them or going no contact. I choose the latter to self-differentiate and heal from codependency. I now reject self-destructive extreme non-confrontation. And as a result, I am healing my body, mind, and spirit. I love and value myself enough to do the uncomfortable work of temporary confrontation to protect myself long-term. Cutting off supplying a self-absorbed person with your attention is a favor to them, essential for you, and reduces their power. The more people who are willing to overcome fear of confrontation and set boundaries instead of freeze-fawn submission, the less supply the bully gets, the less power they have. Getting out of freeze fawn and into boundary setting confrontation isn't only for you. 
It's for everyone who is more vulnerable to the bully than you are and who are too afraid to do it. Be they younger or maybe traumatized with little recovery or healing, a lot of people just can't do confrontation to their severe detriment. And that used to be me. Not anymore. It finally hurt badly enough to do something about it. Importantly, and this is the real selling point, self-protection also delivers a direct hit of self-worth. A friend said to me that standing up to a bully, saying no and defending yourself is better than sex. The rush of endorphins from confronting what feels like, and in some cases might truly be, a threat to your life has got to be an obvious survival adaptation in natural selection. Who's more likely to survive? Someone who experiences euphoria after surviving a threat or someone who doesn't? The joy of winning, of setting a boundary and not caring who's going to feel victimized and triggered by it, but instead putting your own well-being first is self-worth and self-love. Doing what's best for the bully, simply setting boundaries, is best for them too. It's what a loving parent would do. Now that I know about the rush of surviving confrontation, it's actually kind of appealing. Be careful what you hate. Maybe there's a whole lot more even keel, deadly serious confrontation in store for me, and maybe I will love it. We'll see. All I know is there's a high to be found in defending myself without feeling panicked or dysregulated, just being deadly serious. I'd like you to leave me alone. I'm not kidding. A tactic for shutting down incoming attacks from the self-absorbed is called gray rocking. It means being as uninteresting and unengaging as possible. Huh, is the secret password. It's the conversation killer that offers zero supply. Not agreement, not argument. Just a neutral, huh, and walk away. It's not ignoring, which is a form of submission. Simply allowing it, pretending insults don't hurt. It's acknowledging that they said something and demonstrating that whatever it was doesn't deserve your time, attention, or engagement whatsoever. Bullies are like the ghosts in Super Mario Brothers. When you run, they chase you, and a little too fast. When you turn around and face them, however, they stop and bashfully cover their eyes to hide from you. The boos are often pictured with their tongues out, which is perfect because bullies love to harass you with their often simply uncreative insults and negs. They won't shut up until you face them. The ghosts in the video game are kind of adorable, actually, but you can't let them or the much less adorable real-life bullies be your gatekeepers or you'll never move forward in the game or in life. I don't have to do anything to destroy bullies. They do it to themselves, and I no longer engage in their self-harm behaviors to bond with them. I say no to all of it, and I protect me because I have self-worth, and I am, I am my own good parent now. I am freeing myself from narcissistic abuse trauma and healing my body, mind, and spirit. And what about the other side of confrontation in which I was the cruel one who made mistakes in a relationship? The confrontation required in repairing a relationship with a sincere apology is also pretty frightening. There is no repair without confrontation. Recently, I ran into someone I mistreated when I was 18. 
I had run into this person every five to seven years over the course of nearly 25 years since, and every time felt a pang of guilt and regret. Once again, in my adolescent emotional immaturity, I was hindered by my own self-protective narcissism. When I was 18, my self-absorbed mother discarded me before I moved out. I remember thinking she made leaving home very appealing with her constant silent treatment, anger, and blatant disgust for me. My dad said she was depressed. When I went to him with genuine concern that she hated me based on her hateful behavior, he reassured me, she loves you, dear. I now know her definition of love was different than mine, but I believe she absolutely did love my positive supply as her golden child. It was that year that I lost my best friend to a boyfriend she fell in love with. It's a common story. Your friend falls deeply in love for the first time and discards you. The feeling of being discarded by both women was overwhelming. In my depressive low after the discards, I found myself obsessed with Ethan, who I chased for over two years until I was 20. In my heartbroken pursuit of the attention and approval of narcissists, my own narcissism was pretty high too. I initiated romantic involvement with a handsome, ripped athlete who was smart too. In my own abysmally low self-worth, I assumed he didn't really care about me because I wasn't the cheerleader type. I was truly shocked when he was legitimately interested in me. And I was terrified of intimacy myself, which is why I picked an emotionally unavailable covert narcissist, Ethan, as my number one crush to chase instead of dating this guy. Long story short, I did not handle the situation well. I was not empathetic. I was suffering from the effects of narcissistic abuse and discarding and was in no position to take risks emotionally or trust anyone romantically. Put simply, I was cruel and the guilt I felt for hurting him followed me for 25 years. I'd bet a lot of money it hurt me more than it hurt him long term. But there's no comparing suffering and I have no idea how it had affected him really. Karma got me, however, because I suffered deeply in my pursuit of Ethan instead of choosing to date an available person with actual depth. I ran into him, much to my surprise, in a social context that confirmed I would likely run into him again soon. In the first meeting, I was very surprised and flooded with the old guilt and shame. In the second meeting, I was ready. I had a feeling I'd run into him, and I did. I did not want to make a big deal of an apology 25 years later, especially because I had no idea what his actual experience of me was. I simply wanted to acknowledge I had been a complete jerk to clear the air and forgive myself for my past actions. In this social context, our children were present. His son looks exactly like him. It was as if I could see his inner child running around and I couldn't shake the feeling that I had injured that vulnerable part of him. Seeing his child strengthened my resolve to get the apology out that very day. My guilt was too great to tolerate any longer. The anxiety I felt about the confrontation required to speak the truth and attempt to repair with him was pretty uncomfortable. I had to get him one-on-one in a group setting, and the anticipation of waiting for the right opportunity to bring it up was nerve-wracking. I finally got my opportunity when the subject of someone else's immaturity came up. I seized it and said, speaking of immaturity, I was extremely emotionally immature when I was 18. 
I was a very nice person who could also be atrocious, and I'm sorry. He was totally gracious in responding by saying we were all immature then. It was a massive relief to pop the tension bubble that had grown in me every time I saw him. The interaction following my apology was way more relaxed for me, and I felt much better about myself. I realized that the confrontation necessary to initiate an apology and repair feels nearly as anxiety-producing as professing love for someone. It demonstrates a willingness to take a risk and possibly get hurt by being vulnerable and admitting wrongdoing, which is embarrassing. In fact, healthy confrontation is very loving. It demonstrates empathy and caring about the other person. To deliver an apology necessitates overcoming some discomfort, anxiety, guilt, and maybe even shame. I am lucky my husband and partner of 20 years is the person I've always felt comfortable confronting and apologizing to. His capacity for my huge emotional range is massive, and he is the primary person I have learned from in how to do confrontation and repair in the first place. Maya Angelou said, I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. In my memory, I made this man feel terrible and I felt terrible as a result. It was essential for my growth and healing to try repairing with him, even though I don't know him well. My apology wasn't for him ultimately, it was for me and my own self-worth. I am more in my true self, my highest self, now than I was when I was a wounded and unhealed adolescent. I've changed, and I like me now a whole lot more than I did then. Extreme non-confrontation isn't nice, honest, or real. It's denial, submission, and it's immature. It's pretending this is fine as the world burns down around you. It's just avoidance and fear, and I get it. Non-confrontation, however, hurts so much more, and sometimes forever. Non-confrontation is so much worse than the temporary terror of facing a bully who has zero empathy for you and is actually relishing hurting you. It is also so much more painful to hang on to guilt for past mistakes than to muster the courage to confront someone you hurt with an apology and repair. Externally, by getting into the observer, bullies shrink down to the badly behaved adult toddlers they are. The feelings to have about them aren't anger and fear or dysregulation at all. The bullies deserve only our boundaries and dismissal and often no contact. Confronting them is dysregulating, but so is getting bullied by them and a bully's role in life is to test everyone. Our role is to take it or say no. When it hurts badly enough, or hopefully sooner than that, we can and will say no. Internally, I can also take an observer view with my younger self, who wasn't always as nice as she seemed. She tried so hard to be the perfect golden child she was raised to be, burying her vulnerability and hurt, and being pretty heartless in romantic relationships, unfortunately. My immaturity could make me cruel, while I wasn't the only emotionally immature 18-year-old, I was especially so because I'd been raised by narcissists who are, by definition, emotionally immature. Healthy conflict was completely missing from my life experience at that time. There was never any repair. None of this excuses my behavior. It does, however, offer context that makes it easier for me to forgive myself, 
I really was doing the best I could, and my best wasn't great sometimes, I admit. Many of us avoid confrontation as if it were life-threatening, because the risk of it going badly and resulting in us getting kicked out of our tribe feels terrifying. But what I've learned is, healthy confrontation is love. It is loving to put in the effort to set boundaries with someone who has none. They can't do it, so we have to, like a good parent, or both we and them suffer. It is also loving to apologize and repair. Now that I've finally had this realization about confrontation, and knowing it's truly unavoidable in my quest to increase my self-worth, I welcome it. I look forward to my next opportunity to do it. With practice, I get better and better at confronting calmly from an observer perspective instead of feeling victimized by perpetrators or frozen by shame about my own mistakes. How did you overcome an extreme fear of confrontation in your life? Tell me at askmiddlecath at gmail.com. Join me for the next episode of The Middle Cath, where we are healing from extremes and finding self-worth, self-love, self-compassion, and forgiveness. We are finding the middle path to a balanced life. Do you have a question that you'd like me to answer on a future episode? Contact me at askmiddlecath at gmail.com. <laughs>